All right, turn your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at a, a good number of verses this morning, uh, but I want to start here, Colossians chapter 3. I think the Christian life could really be summed up in this one verse. There's a lot of verses that we could say that about, um, but this one, really, if, if we could get this one thing taken care of, then I think a lot of everything else would just fall right into place the way that it's supposed to be. And of course, we have a, we have a responsibility to constantly, through the rest of our life, be doing everything that we can to try to draw as close to God as we can. And how does that happen? That happens because we study the Word of God, right? We read the manual. How do you know how to put things together if you're not reading the manual the right way, you know? You can, uh, and I, I've used this illustration before, but I know that, that men are, are more like this than, than ladies are, but I'm sure there's probably some ladies that are the same way, but you get something and, oh, I, I can put this thing together. Look how simple that is. And you start putting it together and something's just not fitting right, you know? Uh, you might make it look halfway decent, but you get to the end and you've got two or three parts left over in your hand, and now what am I supposed to do with these, right? And it doesn't function exactly the way that it could. I did that with a, uh, I, I used to put together all the, uh, when I worked as an assistant pastor down in Chesterfield, um, I had a lot of responsibilities, but one of the things that I did was just pretty much all the maintenance ended up falling to me because I was the one that knew how to fix it. So something breaks, hey, can you fix this? Well, then they got new furniture, so they, they ordered a bunch of teacher's desks, and so I got tasked with putting all the desks together and everything else. And the first one that I did, uh, you know, I was following the instructions just kind of loosely. I had put them together many times before, so I put this whole thing together, and I got it all set up, and something just didn't look right. And I figured out that what happened was I switched the panels, and so the inside was finished, and the outside was unfinished, and that's what you saw. And I said, man, I'm not taking this whole desk apart just to twist that thing around. So that desk went up against the wall on one side, and you never saw it. But, you know, the, the, the same thing works in our life. Well, yes, you know, as Christians, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. The, you hear things in preaching, and... And the way that we really get close to God, the way that we really understand what God wants us to do, the way that our the manual, we study the Word of God. And this, this message today is not necessarily aspects of things in our lives that, are, that we find in the Word of God, but Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, I think, set your affection on things above, not on things that are in the right place, then everything else will just fall into place. And that's why I say there's a lot of verses that our affections are on things above. Instead of being on things on this earth, everything's going to be all right. I'm trying to train my children to grow up with responsibility. This is not a message about in um, our society today, especially with young people. They're not given any kind of responsibility. And so they're in college or something like that, and they have no idea how to handle it. And then everything is unfair, and they're treating them. They think the world's just supposed to bow at their feet, and that's obviously not the way that it works. I digress with all those as well. When I find something undone that they know they're supposed to do, or I find them, you know, they're doing something they're not supposed to do, I use the phrase, and it's probably a line that you've used before, you should not have to be told to do that, know that that's what you're supposed to do, right? You've been told enough times not to do that, you know you should use that on you, right? Uh, but we are the children of God, and when we accept Jesus Christ as just like his children, we experience all the blessings and all the benefits of being one of his children, our own children, and there are times when God says, you should not have to be told that. That's something that you already know. The whole Christian life, I think, can be summed up in five things that we should know without having to be exhorted, without having to be 
rebuked without having to be threatened to do them in any way. So what I want to share with you this morning is five things we should not have to be told. Five things we should not have to be told. Let's pray, and then we'll look at these things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the word of God. Pray that you'd help us as we look at it this morning and as we study it, that we'd get some things that will help us in our Christian lives to be what you want us to be. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to look at a couple verses in Deuteronomy, and then I'm going to look at a couple verses in the New Testament, but I want you to see these with me. Number one is a Christian should not have to be told to love God. Christians should not have to be told to love God. Now, we're given command after command in the Bible that we should love him. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. It's about as plain as it can be. This was given to the children of Israel. But it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. A couple pages over in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, this is another exhortation that he's given to the children of Israel, but he says this in chapter 11 in verse number 1, therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always, but therefore thou shalt love, that word shall means it's something that you will do. There is, there is language in the police code, and I don't know all the police uh, um, the police code and everything else, but I do know a lot of it just from having ridden so much with the police. There are some things that say you may do, which gives them dis- the discretion on whether or not they want to give somebody a ticket for this or that or whatever else. But there are some that say you shall do, and you don't have a choice. If it says you shall do this, then you better do it or you're going to lose your job. And that's exactly what we see in the Word of God. When it says you shall, that means you don't have an option. You better do this. Now turn over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. And I told you, I talked about this, I believe, on Wednesday night about what is known as the harmony of the Gospels. The harmony of the Gospels means that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were four individuals. They were four different people who followed Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ, if you will. And they were not all at every one of the events that Jesus was at, but most of them were at every one of them. Um, uh, or at least a handful of them were, and each one of them kind of focused on a different thing. Matthew focuses on Jesus Christ as the king. Mark focuses on Jesus Christ as the son of man. Luke focuses on Jesus Christ as the servant, and so on. They each talk about Jesus in a different light, and so they don't all have the exact same stories, but there is harmony between the Gospels. When they tell a story, they, uh, you know, each one of them do not contradict each other, because even though Matthew might have a different view of what he saw and Mark had a different view of what he saw because they're looking at it through different eyes and they're different people, their stories still match up. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in in, in these first three in particular, uh, each one of these basically quotes Jesus in saying this, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Turn over to Mark chapter 12. And I'm I'm making a point here to say that, obviously, not every story is in all four Gospels. But the ones that I think Jesus saw as more important, the ones that he really wanted to get the point across in, he had them in all four of these Gospels. And this is one of those. You see the same thing in Mark chapter 12. Thou shalt love the Lord, verse 30. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. You notice that word shout. It's a command. We will do it. We are supposed to be doing it. Luke chapter 10 and verse 27. 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength. And he adds one more, and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. See, some carnal Christian might say, do you force yourself to love God? Well, if I'm supposed to love him, do I have to force myself to do that? No, loving God for the Christian ought to be as natural as, as water flowing downhill. We ought to just love God for what he's done for us. When you stop to think about everything that God has saved you from, everything that God is going to save us from in the future, we don't have to go through the wrath. We don't have to go to hell. We don't have to go through all of these things that the Bible talks about for those that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. He saved us from a whole lot of things, and our love for him should not be forced or drawn out of us. We should love him for who he is. So a Christian should not have to be told to love God, but also turn over to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, a Christian should not have to be told to fear God. A Christian should not have to be told to fear God. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse number 10. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse number 10, the Bible says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, if your life is going to be well-balanced, it must be in the fear of God. God's not the boogeyman waiting for you to make some little mistake so he can whack you over the head with a, with a mallet or something like that. God's very merciful. God delights in mercy, the Bible says. He says he's, he's gracious and all of those things that we know about God. But God is also just. God's, we, we wouldn't want God to be any other way. It, would be, it wouldn't be fair if God punished some people for th certain things and not punished other people for certain things, right? And we, we talk about the justice of God. Well, these people who are anti-God and who are doing everything they can to tear down Christianity and doing everything they can to tear down the name of Jesus Christ, someday they're going to get judged and God's going to give them what, what's coming to them. And certainly we don't want to see that happen, but there is comfort in knowing that God is just and that all of these people who are so anti-God are eventually someday going to be judged for what they do. We want that judgment to happen, but we don't want God to judge us, right? But a just God is going to judge fairly. Think about how, and, and this, I mean, sadly, this, this happens a lot of times, it seems like, but you have somebody who is maybe would be considered a little bit more down and out, a nobody, so to speak, and they, they murder somebody and they get the death sentence. And then somebody who's famous kills somebody and they get two years and a little bit of probation because of who they are, right? It just doesn't seem like it's justice. And we say, that's so unfair. Just because he's got money and just because he's got ties and connections and all these things. Look at this. This ain't justice, right? God is not that way. God's justice is right. God's justice is fair. And because of that, we ought to have the fear of the Lord. And what that means is we ought to be afraid to sin against him. We ought to be afraid to go against what he says in the word of God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. We should expect that God will judge our actions for everything we do. Now, sometimes it may not be as harsh as something that we thought was going to happen. We sin and, well, it just kind of seems like I got away with that one. We didn't. We're going to pay, we're going to pay for it, but God does give us mercy. God is gracious towards us, and sometimes when we deserve a harsh punishment, he doesn't do that, but we should expect it. We should expect that God is going to judge every single thing that we do. The law of the harvest is sowing and reaping. We need to understand that we are going to reap what we sow. A farmer that puts corn in the ground is going to get corn coming back up, and a whole lot of it, right? A farmer that puts a, a bean seed in the ground is going to get beans and a whole lot of them. And the same is true with us in our lives. We are going to reap what we sow. If we sow sin, we're going to reap judgment. 
We sow in righteousness, the Bible says, we're going to reap in mercy. But the fear of God teaches us that godly living draws us closer to God himself. And that's where the fear of the Lord takes over, this principle of sowing and reaping. And we begin to discipline ourselves. Fearing God is the foundation that will help us to have the right attitude toward God and others. When we fear the consequences of our disobedience to him, then we can, we can have the right relationship with him because it'll keep us from doing the things that bring God's judgment. That's what the fear of the Lord is. You're, you're close to this. Let's turn over to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28. A man that fears God is going to keep himself and discipline himself from doing things that are going to bring God's judgment. And oh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the fear of God. Oh, he's just, he's such an angry God. He just can't wait for you to sin so he can judge you for those things. And that's not, that's not true. The way that some people look at God is that way because they don't know who God is. They don't, they're not Christians. They're not saved. So they don't, they don't understand the love that God has for us and all of those things. But look what the Bible says in Proverbs 28 and verse 14. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. We fear God. It's going to go well with us. Things are going to go real well for a Christian that fears God because it's going to keep us from doing the things that we shouldn't do right? It's just the same way when you were growing up and, and, and you had parents that disciplined you for doing wrong. You were afraid to do things that were going to bring your parents discipline because you didn't want to get spanked, right? That's the fear of your dad, right? And the same way, works, it works the same way with God. It helps us to stay on the right path. It helps us to have that right relationship with him because I don't want God to have to judge me. I don't want God to have to bring down his wrath upon me for doing something that is against his word, but he treats us like sons, and whom the Lord loveth, the Bible says, he chasteneth. Think about how wrong it would be if your son went out and played at two years old, went out and played in the middle of the road, and you said, well, it's his choice. I mean, I guess he can do what he wants to do. I, who am I to punish him, right? You would say, no, you're going to punish him. Stay out of the road. It's going to kill you, right? And the same is true with God. Well, God could just let us go. Well, he's got a free choice. He's, you know, grace covers everything, and he can go do what he wants to do. No, God wants us to keep us from doing those things because it's harmful for us. It hurts us. And that's why the Bible says, happy is the man that feareth always. So a Christian should not have to be told to love God. A Christian should not have to be told to fear God. But number three, a Christian should not have to be told to worship God. Turn over to John chapter 4. God commands us to worship him, and he will be worshiped. John chapter 4 and verse number 23 says this, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, what that means is this. I've talked about this before, but you cannot force somebody to become a Christian. You can say, you become a Christian or I'm going to kill you. And they can say, okay, I'm a Christian. But that doesn't mean that they got saved. It doesn't mean they're going to heaven. Because, you, because being a Christian is not something that you are on the outside. It's who you are on the inside. It's how you've been transformed in your heart. It's whether or not you've accepted Jesus Christ, truly accepted Jesus Christ in your heart. All those external things don't mean anything. Baptism does not mean that you're saved. Going to church does not mean that you're saved. Doing good does not mean that you're saved. Those are good things, but those are all external things. And just because somebody does those things on the outside does not mean they're a Christian. And that's exactly what the Bible is talking about. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
It's a heart thing. And when we worship him, it's not just something that we're doing on the outside. It's something that we're doing on the inside, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. The host of heaven worships God, and we who are blood-bought ought to be the first one to crown him king of kings. Not just in the way that we act, but in the way that we live, and in the way that we think, and in the way that we meditate on the word of God. Even the thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He called him Lord. He understood who he was. He put him in the position that he belonged in. And the main reason why we would not worship God in our lives is because it doesn't fit our lifestyle uh, to worship God in so many cases. But the command is in the Bible. We are to worship God. So the question comes down to this. Is he preeminent in your life? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 says that in all things he might have the preeminence. We talked about this just I think it was actually Wednesday night. He doesn't just want a favorable spot. He doesn't want just a spot close to the top. He doesn't want a, a prominent spot. He wants the preeminent spot. He wants number one in our lives. That's what he deserves. One of the best ways that we can do that is by being together in church to worship him as a family. We are a church family. And that, you know, you hear that term, but why is that? It's because once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we become his son. We become his daughter. And so you have... God the Father, and you have sons and daughters, we're a family. We're a church family. And that's how God wants us to worship him. The French have a proverb that says this, a good meal ought to begin with hunger. It's hard to enjoy a meal when you're not hungry, right? Oh, we still can, but it's hard to do that. You know, if you've ever sat down and somebody invited you to go out to eat and you just ate not that long ago and you sit down and you're like, man, this looks good, but... I'm just, I just, I'm full. I can't eat anything. I don't want anything, you know. Um, but when you're hungry, anything tastes good, right? There have been things that I've thought, man, that, that was really good. And I go back and eat it later or I eat it a little bit later on in the meal. I'm like, eh, it's not as good as it was because I ate that first. And I was starving when I ate it, right? Anything tastes good when you're hungry. And I think if we approach the word of God with that hunger to be satisfied, then we're going to be satisfied every single time. Effective worship begins with a hunger for God. And if you have that hunger, then you're going to worship him the way that he wants to be worshiped. When you sit down to read the word of God and you're hungry to know what the word of God says, then even if it doesn't sound like something that you like to hear or sound like something that you want to hear, you're going to accept it because you're hungry to know what God wants you to do. Well, I've never heard that before. If you're hungry, then you'll do it. Well, I'm just that's just not something that I would ever want to do. Well... If you're hungry, then you'll change those things that need to be changed because it's in the word of God. The answer will determine your happiness into where and how does he fit into your schedule. We so many times just want to fit God in where we can fit him in. And if it doesn't fit in with our busy life, then, well, I guess I'll have to worship God on a different day. God cannot do for you what he would like to do for you if you don't worship him in spirit and in truth. And I won't have you turn over there, but Psalm 103, verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You ought to say amen. You ought to say praise the Lord. It's one of those things that just wells up inside. You ought to raise your hand and worship God. It ain't going to scare me if you do that. You know, it's, it's, when it's, when it's, you can't help it when, when God puts something into your heart. And you get so full of the word of God and so full of the righteousness of God and so full of who God is, he can't help but spill out. It'll spill out into the way that you say amen. It'll spill out into the way that you say praise the Lord. It'll spill out into the way that you talk about him to others. 
So a Christian should not have to be told to love God. A Christian should not have to be told to fear God. A Christian should not have to be told to worship God. And number four, a Christian should not have to be told to serve God. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It seems almost senseless to say it because it, it just seems like it's something that should be as natural as breathing or eating to us. If you're one of God's servants, then you serve him, right? It just seems like it, it should just go naturally. But there's so many people who claim to be a child of God, who claim to be a servant of God, who don't serve him. We shouldn't have to be told to serve God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 says this, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have to realize that we're bought with a price, and that price is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That was an expensive, expensive thing that he gave for us. It's not enough is, is, is this not enough reason to want to serve him? Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. It just makes sense that you would want to do everything that you could to serve him with the time that we have here on this earth. We don't have a long time. Life is short on the timeline of eternity. God who always was and God who always will be gives us this 60, 70, 80, 90, if we're lucky, 100 years to live on this earth, and that's the only chance that we get to serve him. Oh, we'll, we'll go to heaven if we're saved. We'll be able to gather around the throne and worship him and do all of those things for all of these years. But the thing is, this life is all we get to serve him. This is the only chance that we get to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you take that opportunity to serve him while you have the time? Think about this, how much of the 168 hours a week do you serve God? 24 hours in a day, seven days a week is 168 hours. We sleep a lot of it, eight hours times 756, that's about half that we spend, or at least a third that we spend sleeping, right? Which is, is fine, but we talk about being willing to give the tithe. That tithe is 10% of everything you make. You give it to God. You get a paycheck, 10% of it belongs to God. And that's all he requires out of us is 10%. He lets us live off the 90%. Aren't you glad he didn't switch that and say, well, give me 90%, you can live off the 10, right? But he, he only requires us to give 10%. If you make $100 in a week, God commands that we give him 10. It's a very small amount compared to what he gives us. But if we're commanded to give back 10% of everything that he gives us, Certainly, he gives us money, but doesn't God give us every breath that we take? Doesn't God give us every hour that we have to live? Shouldn't 10% of all of that go back to God, too, if 10% if of everything he gives us is supposed to go back to him? That's 16, almost 17 hours a week that should belong to God if we're only giving him back 10% of the time that he gives us. When's the last time you gave God 17 hours? And I don't mean, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be out knocking on doors for all of those 17 hours, but spending time meditating on his word, spending time in prayer with him, spending time in church. I mean, 17 hours sounds like a whole lot, but in the grand scheme of things, that's only 10% of the hours that he gives us every single week. Doesn't seem like a whole lot, 10%. 
But if we're commanded to give 10% back to him, then if we took that seriously, then we'd have no problem giving God 17 hours a week. A big part of our service is telling people that Jesus loves them and that he died for them. It's then encouraging them to come to Sunday school. It's encouraging them to come to church and to help and be a part of the worship, to learn the Bible. Isn't it time that we get started on some of those things? I read a story some time ago about an 18-year-old girl from Washington State that came and attended a church service, and for the first time in her life, she heard the message of the gospel. She heard that, obviously, that uh, if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you're going to spend an eternity in hell. She listened to that, and as the, the following Tuesday, the members of the church received a letter that she wrote to them, and the letter said this, Dear church members, last Sunday I attended your church, and I heard the preacher. In the sermon, the preacher said that all men have sinned and rebelled against God, and because of their rebellion and disobedience, they all face eternal damnation and separation from God. But then he also said, God loves man and sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to redeem men from their sins, and that all those who believe in him would go to heaven and live with God eternally. My parents recently died in rapid succession. I know they did not believe in Jesus Christ, whom you call the Savior of the world. If what you believe is true, they're damned. You compel me to believe that either the message is true, that you yourself don't believe this message, or that you don't care. You see, we only live three blocks from your church, and no one ever told us. How sad. And yet we say that we're servants of God. We say that we're willing to serve him. We're willing to do anything that God tells us to do. And yet somebody lives three blocks from the church and never heard the message of the gospel. That's why it's so important that we get out and knock on doors. That's why it's so important that we tell other people about Jesus Christ. Is it an easy thing? Not necessarily. But it shouldn't be that hard when you think about what the message is, right? You would go tell perfect strangers if you had a cure for cancer. You would knock on every door and you'd say, tell everybody that you know, we have a cure for cancer. Here's medicine, right? We wouldn't care if they were a stranger. We wouldn't care if they didn't believe in drugs. We didn't care if they believed in whatever. We'd want them to know we have a cure for cancer and here it is. Tell everybody. Why would you not tell everybody? But then here we have the message of the gospel. That's something that's so much more valuable than any kind of physical medicine that we could ever find. It's a cure for sin. It's what gets us into heaven. It doesn't just buy us a few more hours of physical life. It buys us eternal life. And yet, for some reason, we don't see it as important enough to share it. The way we serve God is as important as life or death. If we serve him and we share him with others, we can... Bring life to those who accept it. But if we decide that we're too busy to serve him, we decide that we don't share the message of the gospel, then we are literally allowing people to die and go to hell. What an important responsibility we have to serve God. A Christian should not have to be told to love God. A Christian should not have to be told to fear God. Should not have to be told to worship God. A Christian should not have to be told to serve God. And lastly, turn over to John chapter 14. Christians should not have to be told to obey God. Pierre Barlow was a gunner in the fort of Mont Valerin during the Prussian siege of Paris. One day he was standing by his gun when General Noel, who was the commander, came up to him and leveled his glass at Severs Bridge. And he said, Gunner, 
you see that little bungalow over there? You see that bridge? I said, yes, sir. He said, there's a little shanty in the thicket of shrubs right next to that bridge. I see it, sir. Pierre told him, and he kind of turned a little bit pale. The general was not looking at his face, but he said, there's a nest of Prussians in that little bungalow. Shell it, my man. And so Pierre, he sighed, but he pulled that gun up there, and he carefully fired it. The whole thing exploded, and the general said, well hit, my man, well hit. But as he looked at Pierre, he was surprised to see this, the look on his face, just not a look of somebody who had just done something that was a great deed in the army. And he actually saw a tear that was running down this man's cheek. And he said, what's the matter, man? And Pierre said, pardon me, general. That was my home. It was everything I had in this world. John chapter 14 and verse number 23 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and will make our abode with him. Obe obedience may not always be what we want to do, but it's certainly what we're commanded to do. We come up with a lot of excuses why we can't obey this commandment or that commandment. Well, that's, not, that's just not part of my nature. That's not who I am. God, don't expect me to ever answer that. Don't expect me to ever do that. Those are not valid excuses. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 8 and verse 29, I do always those things that please the Father. Peter said it's better to obey God rather than men. And it's important to obey man that God's put over us. If Obviously, God gives us government for a reason. He puts those people in their positions for a reason. And we should obey those things, assuming they don't go against the commands of God. But do you follow God's commands in every area that you know he's commanded us in? That's why I say it's important that we study the word of God because, well, I didn't know that was a command. is not a good excuse. Or maybe you come across something where you say, wow, I've never read that in the Bible before, but I see that this is something that I should be doing. I'm going to do this. Or, wow, I've never seen that before. I realize this is something that I should not be doing. I'm going to stop doing this. Whatever it happens to be. There are hundreds of commands that we should be following, and that's why it's important that we read and study the Bible. It's a lifelong pursuit of trying to get as close to God as we can possibly get to God. That's why it's important. You, 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 our job is to be as close to God as we can possibly be. Our job is to, be as, to live as close to the way that he wants us to live as we possibly can. And this is why I say that it's so important to be in church you miss things that you hear, that, that you should be hearing from the word of God about what we should be doing or about what we should not be doing when you're not here. You miss things when you, when you skip your time in the word of God in the morning. You miss things that he has for you, that he wants you to do when you skip that Bible time in the morning. That's our job is to make sure that we're doing everything that he commands us to do. And if you're not reading the instruction, man, and if you're not listening to the instructions from the word of God, the first step is to have a, a heart willing to obey, but it's a lifelong pursuit. And if you find something in the word of God that he says that we ought to be doing, or if you find something in the word of God that he says we should not be doing, is your heart willing to do those things that he wants us to do? That's number one, because you're never going to obey God if you're not willing to obey him, right? Well, I'll obey him if it fits in with what I want. That's not what he talks about. That's not obedience. Have you been saved? That's a command in the word of God. Have you been baptized after you were saved? That's a command in the word of God. Do you pray? Do you read the Bible? Do you give your tithes and offerings? Do you witness for Christ? Do you live like a Christian should? All of those are commands in the Bible. 
And many of them commanded over and over and over and over and over again. When we get to heaven, we're going to be measured by our obedience to God. And that goes across the board because, number one, God's commanded all men everywhere to repent. And if you've not obeyed God's command to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're not even going to get into heaven, first of all. But then beyond that, we're going to be measured by our obedience to the word of God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, doesn't come to somebody who just did the things that they decided to pick and choose to do. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, comes from somebody who said, wow, I didn't realize that was there. I need to start doing that. Wow, I didn't realize that I shouldn't be doing that. I better stop. That's what obedience to the word of God is. That's what following his commands are. Let me end with this. In 1999, and you might, you probably a lot of you remember this, but John F. Kennedy Jr. flew his small airplane from New York City to his family home in Massachusetts for a wedding. And on board on that little plane were his wife, Carolyn, and her sister. They were going to fly back. Kennedy was, he was a licensed pilot, but he hadn't been cleared to fly with only instruments. And that means, and, and I, I took flying lessons for quite a while when I was in high school. I got a lot of hours uh, in. I never got my license because I started college, and you can't pay for both of those. I can tell you that much. Um, but I know a lot about the instruments, and I know a lot about how they fly, and I know a lot about the regulations and things, and if, assuming they're the same as they were then, one of the regulations is you can't be within 500 feet of a cloud. Because if you go through a cloud and you don't have your instrument rating, you can get turned around very quickly. And John F. Kennedy Jr., their takeoff was delayed until after dark because of a couple things that happened. And he should have waited for daylight, should have sought maybe a more uh, experienced pilot, but he decided that he was going to go ahead and take off anyway. That's another thing. If you're not instrument rated, you're not allowed to fly at night. He decided he was going to anyway because he wanted to get to this destination. But unfortunately for them, that plane never reached their destination, and all three of the passengers on that plane died. They did an internal investigation, and the investigators determined that the crash was likely caused from being disoriented by flying over the water, the open water at night, without any landmarks or without any visible horizon. And more than likely, what happened was his lack of experience may well have led him to trust what he thought he was seeing instead of to rely on his instruments. And some people said that, he, that they even believed that for a time he was flying upside down and didn't even realize it because of the fact that he got so disoriented and, and he just couldn't even tell which way was up. And he didn't trust the instruments or didn't know how to use the instruments, one of the two. But they crashed that night, and he and his wife and her sister were all killed. And I think all of us face temptation sometimes to walk by sight instead of by faith. We can't see how things are going to work out, and so we just start going by sight instead of by faith. Faith in God is going to keep us from crashing, not necessarily on an airplane. You know, well, I got faith in God, so here we go. You know, it's not that, but it's trusting him that when you're doing what he says we ought to be doing, that he's going to help everything to work out the way that it should. Human reason is going to fail us at times, but God never fails. His word keeps us on the right course as long as we obey it. And that's why it's so important that a Christian have obedience to the word of God. We're all trying to grow in Christ. At least that's what we should be doing if we're saved. We should be constantly growing until we die. I've been saved for over 30 years now. Been in church my entire life. I still have a lot of growing left to do. 
Many of you have been saved for even longer than that. We have a lot of growing left to do. We have a lot of faith left to exhibit. We've got a, a lot of obedience left to give him. A Christian should not have to be told to love God. A Christian should not have to be told to fear God. A Christian should not have to be told to worship God. A Christian should not have to be told to serve God, and a Christian should not have to be told to obey him. We should be constantly trying to mature as a Christian. And the more we give in to, the, to his leading in our lives and the closer we desire to be to him, the easier those things become. Well, it might seem like just an insurmountable mountain to climb because there's so much in the Bible. And what a, How do I know what I'm doing? How do I know if this is right or how do I know if this is wrong? When you have a real desire to know the truth and you study it, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. The Bible says he'll guide us into all truth. He'll help us to know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Let me encourage you to take this message and, and discipline your life in, in the light of these eternal truths. They're eternal. They have eternal consequences. If we don't love God, it's got eternal consequences. If we don't obey him, it's got eternal consequences. And all of these things do. We need to follow him. We need to love him. We need to worship him. We need to serve him. We need to do these things because it's going to determine our standing before God when we get to the end of this life and we stand before him. Let's make sure we're doing things that we know we should be doing and then let God show us where we can change. Let him show us the things that we need to do different. Let him show us the things that we need to do better. And if you have that desire and that hunger, it's not a hard thing to do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. And again, we thank you for everything that you give us in the word of God. I know that each one of us, I think if I were to get everybody to raise their hands in here this morning, there's not one person that would keep their hand down. Every one of us would raise our hand and say we want to be closer to you. Every one of us would say we want to live for you. Every one of us would say we want to serve you. But God, some of us fall so short in those areas. Because we're relying on ourselves, we're relying on sight instead of on faith. There's so many other reasons. God, I pray that you'd help every one of us to give in to you this morning and be willing to do whatever it is that you want us to do. Be willing to not do whatever it is that you don't want us to do. And that each one of us would have lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. As the piano plays, the invitation is open and you can come. Thank you.